So this is one of those texts that I think if we didn't go through the Bible, you know, if we weren't just going, walking through 1 John from start to finish, I think I'd tend to avoid it. But we can't avoid it because we're walking through the text. So, so um, let's buckle in. If you, um, uh, you will need to, to use one of those red, red uh, pew Bibles. So if, if you don't have one, there, there should be, a, there were a few, there should be one in, in the pew. And I'd encourage you to open up to page 1226 where, where Nick just read from. Uh, as we walk through, uh, as we walk through the rest of this text, and and hopefully, if you have that worship program, that will help help you walk through it as well. Last year, Sarah and I uh, were watching a gripping movie, uh, retelling the true story of, of an Indian boy named Saru. And through a tragic series of events, Saru—he's he's only five at the time—gets lost in the middle of of Calcutta. And he's sent to an orphanage, and he's, he's eventually adopted by a well-to-do uh, Australian family. The movie then chronicles Saru's life, knowing that his real family is likely still alive, but he, he's not, he has no idea where they, where they are, and, and he, he's got no idea where he came from. He, he, doesn't, understand, he doesn't remember his background. He, he doesn't even know whose resemblance he bears. And the entire movie is this incredibly raw, emotionally painful picture of what it feels like to be cut off from family. And, and through this entire movie, Saru is struggling as he, as he grows up from five onwards to balance who is my true family? What is my true identity? Is it with this Australian couple who, who have adopted me and they've loved me and they've cared for me and they... And they my whole life, or, or, or what about my mother who's in some small, remote village in India who, who one day woke up and, and her, her, her five-year-old boy never came home? The Apostle Paul, or sorry, I'm not in, the Apostle John <laughs> suggests that every person has not only a physical family, but also a spiritual family. And, and who our spiritual family, understanding who your spiritual family is, is, is of a of incredible importance for your identity and confidence and assurance and spiritual life. And in this passage that we read, John tucks up, uh, takes up the, the topic of your spiritual family. Have you ever asked, what, what does God's family look like? How do I enter God's family? How do I know if I'm already in God's family? To whom do I belong? For John, these questions could not be more important. Because to know who to whom you belong, it shapes your life, it shapes your confidence, it shapes everything about how you live. And yet, John wants you to know as well, if you don't share the traits of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, you may indeed be a part of a different family. But here's the thing, this family isn't, isn't fixed. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that everyone here, we all are born, as he calls it, children of wrath. We're born with desires naturally bent, not towards God, but actually in rebellion against God. We're born, he says, taking the side of Satan against God and his kingdom. And, and throughout the Bible, God is now rescuing sons and daughters from the cohort of, saving, of Satan and making them his own children. So in this chapter that, we, that, that Nick just read, John's 
got one basic point. God's children resemble their spiritual father. Just like in physical ways, we resemble our own parents. And he's going to start here. It's very important where we start. He's going to start with what we are. He's speaking to the church with the assumption that they are children of God. John uses the, the, the family metaphor to describe a person's relationship with God. Put simply, for John, a Christian is someone who is born of God. John is so overwhelmed by this statement that he, he says in verse 1, look at how great the love is that the, that the Father has lavished upon us. John is speaking in all caps. He hit the, the all-caps button here. It's astonishing for him that the Creator God is not, he's not angry with us. He's, he's not indifferent to us. He's not even merely tolerating us, but he loves us. When, when John describes God's love for his children, it, it, John reaches down to perhaps the, the most intimate, deepest form of human love, the, 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 the love of a parent for a child. And John says, that is what we are. You know, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that in Christ, we are adopted into God's family when God, it's like when God declares us to be sons or, or daughters, we become legally part of God's family. But, but John, he goes further. John says we are born of God. God puts his spirit, his very life into us. And he begins transforming us into his likeness. It's as if in adoption, we get the family name. But in new birth, we become part of the family by nature. When a little boy or girl gets adopted, they receive a new family name, don't they? And you can imagine the adoptive mother saying to her husband, right after getting, after the court, you know, this is your adopted son. And that's beautiful, but, but you can imagine years later, after thousands of hours doing homework together, and, and um, playing football together, and, and thousands of hours of that boy following his dad around and watching him intently, that boy eventually graduates from university and they're sitting there watching him, watching all the way he interacts with everyone and, and that adoptive mother leans to that father and says, that is your son, isn't it? What is she saying? She's saying, look, he's taken on your traits. He's taken on your mannerisms and your character. He resembles you not only in name but in nature. That's what John is describing here. When, when God's Spirit gives us new life, he begins to transform us into his own likeness. And yet, although we are <clears throat> already children of God, John states in verse 2 that in this life we remain imperfect reflections of our spiritual father. <clears throat> in this life, we remain imperfect spiritual reflections or reflections of our spiritual family verse 2 dear friends now we are now we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known so we are we are true children and he is transforming us more and more into his likeness but in this life we are and we will remain imperfect reflections won't we and, and this should comfort us 
Okay, this should comfort us because as you just read, or or as you just heard, John is going to set a very high bar for reflecting Jesus, isn't he? But he's realistic. You're not going to do it perfectly. That is, until a future life. He holds out hope that in the future life, you will be a perfect reflection of your family. Verse 2b. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as, <clears throat> as he is. There's, there is hope that one day we really will reflect Jesus and his kingdom perfectly. And the impetus for that, that radical change is seeing Jesus in all his glory return, his beauty and his majesty. I, I don't know what that's exactly going to look like, of course, but there's something about seeing Jesus without the... <clears throat> curtain and veil of sin and our limitedness that will transform us in a moment. It's so important to see why John begins this way. John tells us that his love, God's love, is poured out on us, has preceded and prepared us for a life that reflects him. John does not say, Be righteous, be loving, so that you can become a child of God. Oh no, he doesn't start that way. No, John says, God has lavished you with love. He has given you new birth. He has given you his own spirit so that you can live a righteous and loving and good life. God gives us life. He transforms us from the inside out. And then he says, go live like a child. Not the reverse. Okay, in the remainder of this passage, John provides us with three family traits that reveal whether you are in the family of God. Okay? Traits the family of God share. So it's interesting. John divides all of humanity into two families, two spiritual families, right? Many physical families. He says, you're either born of God or you're born of the devil. And those born of a God, naturally, share God's traits. And and, and then those born of the devil share Satan's traits. And he goes, do you want to know if you're a child of God? Examine the character traits of your life. So first, first character trait of God that is then in his children is their relationship to the world. We see this in the last portion of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us, that's the children of God, is that it did not know him. That's, that's Jesus, I think, there. It sometimes astonishes me. The fact that Jesus was largely rejected by his own people. I mean, the Gospels tell us that he was unwelcomed in this drabby little town of Nazareth. And even in the Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, he was, to- he was largely rejected. I mean, that's unfathomable to me. Jesus, even, okay, even from a non-Christian, even from a secular perspective, is, is probably the most significant and most influential figure in human history. And, and the people of his day, in this you know, working-class town of, of Nazareth, wanted nothing to do with him. It makes you think twice about people today who said, if I could just see Jesus, I'd, I'd believe. Well, well, history would suggest otherwise. 
But, but Jesus also taught that if they didn't receive him, they're not going to receive you, his disciples. Friends, we should not be shocked when the world thinks we are backwards or behind the times. Sometimes they're going to think we're too progressive. Sometimes they think we're going to think we're too conservative or traditional. Sometimes they'll think we're too to the left, and sometimes they'll think we're too to the right. But we also shouldn't get too excited when the culture agrees with us as if our approval or as if their approval is more important than God's approval. I mean, at some points, the larger culture will, will agree with the moral vision of Christianity. At other points, the culture will think the Bible's morality is extreme or, or actually immoral. Own it. But, but the culture will change. It will progress or regress in the next generation. And they, at that point, might think all of Christianity is great, or they might think all of Christianity is horrible and immoral. But just know that if you are a child of God, the world is going to oppose you at some point. One of the quickest ways to see who a true child of God is, or who the true children of God are, is to see who abandons God's word and the gospel when the culture disapproves. It's actually in an an antagonistic culture that God often reveals if your God is the culture or your God is the God of the Bible. Secondly, true children of God are characterized not just by their relation to the world, but also by righteousness. Or to put it negatively, by, they're, they're identified by not being characterized by sinfulness in verses 4 to 10. There are two paragraphs in the next section. <clears throat> and they're, they're essentially saying the same thing. Sin is incompatible with someone who has the spirit of Christ in them. Let's read verses 7 to 10. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the the work of the devil. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is, do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Okay, at first glance, the logic is fairly simple and stark. If children reveal the traits of their spiritual father, parents, then a life marked by sinfulness and evil is a, is a life that reveals the devil holds sway of your life and, and not Jesus, who, who came to destroy the works of the devil. On the other hand, a, a life that is characterized by doing what is right and good demonstrates that the Spirit of Christ is actually in you. Okay, first a little context here. Do, do you remember the, the bad guys in the background? The, those, those guys who were, were trying to lead people astray, they were denying Christ, and, and they, were, they had left and abandoned the church. 
they were trying to, to lead people away from the truth, both theologically, that meaning they, they taught that Jesus wasn't the true divine Christ, but, but it, they also tried to lead them astray morally. It appears they denied even the necessity of moral living, okay? They claimed that they had a higher knowledge, and, and this higher knowledge meant that it didn't matter if, if they sinned anymore. It just wasn't a big deal. And the Apostle John opposes moral indifference as forcefully as he does the denial of Christ. For John, he would say, you must live morally and rightly if you're a Christian. And I think that we, as evangelical Christians, can often be closer, actually, to thinking like the bad guys here. I think that's sometimes where I go. The free grace of the gospel, the unconditioned, there's no conditions on God's love. You are utterly, utterly inadequate to earn God's favor, but in no way does that imply that God doesn't care that your life is marked by righteousness and goodness. Let's be very clear here. If, if you think about the gospel as a mechanism to secure heaven so that you can live whatever way you want, you're not thinking like a Christian. You're, John would say you're thinking like a pagan. You, you must remember in the New Testament that the gospel is good news of salvation and transformation. Salvation and transformation are, are linked and cannot be unlinked. But you might be wondering, what is John getting here? At here in verse 8, I mean, look at verse 8. The person who does what is sinful is of the devil? Or verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue in sin. In fact, they can't go on sinning. I mean, if, if you're anything like me, that, that sounds crushing. Who could possibly stand before God and call themselves a child of God given that criteria? Is, is, is John saying that children of God can't sin, won't sin anymore? I don't think that's what John is saying. Unless he is knowingly contradicting what he said in chapter 1. So real quick, in, in chapter 1 verse 8, Rob preached on this a few weeks ago. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So to deny that you sin is to deny the gospel itself. Chapter 2, verse 1. Dear children, I am writing this so that you won't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. So he assumes that in this Christian life, even the true children of God, they will continue to sin. Even earlier in this chapter, verse 2, John reminds us that we're not yet perfected as we will be when Christ returns. So whatever John is saying in this passage, okay, he isn't saying, if you sin, you are not a child of God. It can't be unless he's contradicting himself. Okay, but what is he saying? I think John is saying that sin is incompatible with someone who has the spirit of Christ in them. And therefore, sin and evil is contrary to the very nature of, your new nature in Christ. And therefore, it won't characterize your life. God's children are marked. They're characterized by lives committed to righteousness and goodness. When John says, no one born of God continues to sin, 
I think he's saying no one born of God has a life characterized by sinfulness. I'm getting that interpretation primarily from context. When John compares the children of God with the children of devil in verse 8, he says that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. So he's speaking of lifelong, character-long sin. When he says the one who does what is right is righteous, I don't think he means one righteous act makes you righteous. No, he's saying a, a life characterized by righteousness, right? Even after that, the whole chapter is not thinking about individual sins, but character traits, right? Okay, so I've done a lot of digging with the text. What should we do with this? Well, let me tell you what not, not to do with this. If you're a Christian, don't go home this evening, evening and begin counting all your sins and all your, good, all your good acts, and weigh them on some sort of spiritual scale to see whether, you know, if it goes on one side, then, then you are a child of God. Do not do that. That is not what John is advocating. He doesn't want you to return to legalism in order to get confidence before God. At, at the same time, John really does want us to examine our lives. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians would say, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. I'm going to say something bold here, but I think it's true. And, and in fact, I think, I think it's less bold than what John is saying. <laughs> if your life is consistently marked by sin that is not addressed, that is not confessed, and that is and that you're not fighting against, and you're not turning from, you should not have confidence before God that you're his child. Now, that should probably jolt you. I mean, that jolts me. But let me tell you, I think that's okay. The truth is, in the, in the New Testament, God calls us to assurance in different ways. Okay? At some level, the fact that if you are a member of a church, the fact that the church hasn't removed you from membership is, is some level of confidence that you confess Christ and the church is saying, yeah, we, we see you confessing Christ, even with your life. So that's some level of assurance. And yet, ultimately, your assurance should always be tethered to the finished work of Christ on the cross for you. You, you, you can add anything. It's all what Christ has done. And yet we would not do justice to the New Testament if we ignored the fact that our assurance in Christ in some way stems from our transformed behavior. So you're sitting here, perhaps feeling conviction. I don't know, Luke. I mean, I, I see some transformation. I'm speaking actually to myself here. I, I, I see some transformation, but there are areas in my life that, I mean, I consistently fall in. Maybe, maybe it's the way you treat others. Maybe it's a food or, or alcohol addiction. Maybe it's your anger that is just always getting out of control and you have such a hard time channeling it rightly and not lashing out. Maybe it's, it's what you look on at the TV or computer. There could be so many things. But okay, Luke, I'm hearing this what do I do with it? What do I do now? 
If you have already put your faith in Jesus and you have repented of your sin, then do what every child of God does. Confess your sin. Don't hide it. Fight against it by the power of the Spirit. Get others involved if you need to. And that's why, that's why the church exists, to help you fight against this sin. You can't always do it alone. Get accountability, and, and Lord willing, you'll see small steps of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Friends, you need to be a Christian. You, you, you don't need to re-surrender your life to Jesus, like having a second conversion experience. You don't need to get re-baptized. If you are a true Christian, you will take fighting sin seriously. I mean, often for me, it's in the pain of staring my sin in the face and fighting against that sin that I actually feel most competent that the Spirit of God resides in me. It's like pain isn't pleasant, but it is a sign that you are alive. The fight, the spiritual war against sin that dishonors Christ and, and doesn't help others flourish, the war with that in your heart is a sign that you are a child of God. And I think John believes that there will be legitimate seeds of transformation. At the end of verse 10, John moves from righteousness to love. And I, he spends most of the time here because I think like nothing else, it is our love for one another that is the greatest evidence that the God of love is our Father. Third trait, sacrificial love for one another. John begins, verse 11, by saying, follow the ancient message. The, 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 verse 11, the message you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is, how, this is how Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament and the prophets. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And, and the, that is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Why is love so important? I think it's because hatred and jealousy are at the core of human social existence from the beginning of time. John says, let me give you exhibit A, Cain and Abel. The sons of Eve, the mother of humanity, and after Eve, in Genesis 2, is, is deceived by Satan and she rebels against God, God says this to, to Eve and to Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. There's going to be enmity there. And in the very next chapter, Eve gives birth to two sons, and you're wondering, okay, how is this going to play out? Who, who, where, who are these offspring? Are they, are they sons of God? Are they sons of the woman? Are they, are they sons of, of Satan? And, and of course, Cain is filled with hatred. He shows that he's the spiritual offspring of Satan. And, and the other son, Abel, is the victim of Cain's ha hatred. And, and the fact that Cain's spiritual father is Satan is revealed in the fact that he hates his brother so much that he murders him. Cain stands as an example to all of us Anyone who is marked by hatred and by jealousy rather than love 
shows that they're a child of the devil. We don't use this kind of terminology much anymore, do we? It'd be quite strange if we did. And at this point, you might be thinking, okay, well, well, that's fine. Cain murdered his brother. I would never do anything like that. But then you read verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. So he says hatred is simply heart murder. Cain was jealous of Abel and he, he hated him because of what he had. And that's, that's what jealousy is. I value what that person has more than I value that person. That's what jealousy is. It results in this. I'll get what they have even if I have to sacrifice them to get it. But you might be thinking, okay, but I don't think I hate people, especially my own brothers and sisters, right? Then John takes the love command a step further in verse 17. Read with me. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. It's hard to wiggle out of this one, isn't it? The evidence that you are a child of God is that you love your brother and sister. That means more than affirming your love for them. It means that you are willing to sacrifice your own possessions when they are in need. Listen, John doesn't give us precise instructions for what this looks like. He doesn't say, if you're hoping this, he doesn't say everyone in the church should have the same amount of money. He doesn't say everyone in the church should shop at the same stores. He doesn't say everyone in the church should go on the same holidays. He simply says, be aware of needs of those in your church. And if you're able, meet those needs. And if you close your heart to your brother or sister in need, don't turn around and say, I love God and others. There is a qualification here, though. Because I can hear people thinking, Luke, does this mean I'm obligated to help every person that I might pass on the street? Well, simply I'll say no. You should be careful that your heart isn't hardened towards a person in need on the street. And in fact, I think it's, it's a, quite a good thing. There's often a very good reason to give them some form of help if you can. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, do good to all men everywhere, but especially those of the household of faith, but especially those in your church, okay? So there is certainly a general obligation to be good, be a loving, be a just person with every person you encounter, right? Yet John, he draws a tighter circle of responsibility here. In verse 10, in verse 11, and in verse 17, John says this specific responsibility is towards your brother and sister. Not physically there. He's speaking of, again, your spiritual family. Those fellow members of your church with whom you are joined, I think. He's speaking to a local church here. And here's the thing. Although John is drawing a smaller circle of responsibility than all humans everywhere... 
he's actually doing so, I think, to make the command more meaningful. I mean, I can't imagine if I was responsible to meet the physical needs of every person I encountered. I mean, it's just impossible. In fact, it's so impossible that the command would be utterly meaningless, right? Love what John Stott says here, famous pastor. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Friends, joining a local church puts a face upon God's commands. You can stand before God and say, I love, I love everyone. And he's going to look at you and say, what about that person? What about her? If you have joined up with this church or another church, you have before God said, I am taking responsibility for these people with real faces and real names. Friends, the assumption here is that we know one another well enough to know when a need exists, doesn't it? And there are so many ways to get to know your congregation better. Invite church members over for dinner. Even if that's not the cultural thing to do, let the, let the, let the Bible affect our culture. Provide some company for an elderly person who's lonely. Bake a meal for someone. Visit the sick. Help with some work in the garden someone needs doing. Ask someone to join you as you run errands. Get to know your church so that you are aware when a physical or spiritual or emotional need arises. Okay, John doesn't just tell us to love without taking us squarely to the place where love is most powerfully seen. The greatest example of love is found in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Read verse 15 with me. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, the, the gospel is, is the greatest example of love and it's also the source of love. We love because he first loved us. Jesus had everything. He, he, he is more complete emotionally, spiritually, physically, in terms of what he had before his incarnation. He was rich in splendor. He was glorious. He was innocent. He was righteous. And he sacrificed his life so that we could share his life. It's the polar opposite of Cain where Cain sacrifices the love of his brother in order to get what his brother possesses. Jesus sacrifices himself in order to give us what he possesses. And in doing this, Jesus makes us brothers and sisters. If you want to love like Jesus, and who doesn't? Even the, the, probably the most hardened atheist in the world wants to love like Jesus, right? I mean, if you want to love like Jesus, you've got to start by fixing your eyes on the cross of Christ. 
Some of you might wonder why we talk about Jesus and the cross so much. We talk about it every week almost. It's the place where we learn how to love. The curriculum of love is the gospel. Jesus sacrificed his life for yours so that you can then go and sacrifice your life for others. And I should mention, this called the sacrificial love, it's not only financial. I think that's sometimes what we're thinking. But some of you, some of you have money. Some of you have time. Some of you have wisdom. Some of you have experience. Some of you have an extra room. Give out of whatever God has given you to be a means of grace to those who are in need. May I remind you from verse 14, if you glance there, that when John was writing to this church, he was confident that the love of this congregation demonstrated that they had passed from death to life. And I want, I want to say this, I'm not, I'm not the Apostle John, I speak with no authority like that, but when I, when I look at this congregation, in the year and a half I've known it, I see your love and sacrifice as an evidence that you have passed from death to life. When I look at our love, which is, yes, very imperfect as a church, speaking generally here, what we will be has not yet been made known, but I do think sacrificial love characterizes this body of people. Praise God. Okay, let's conclude. I've got two takeaways. Be about a minute. I want to be crystal clear here. Especially if, if you're not a Christian here. I want to be very clear. This has been an insider conversation, right? John is speaking to a church. He is speaking to people who, are, who he believes are already Christians, okay? You become a Christian not by your righteous behavior, not by having good morals or the right morals. You don't become a Christian because you're, you're a very loving person. Okay, in fact, if you're relying on any of those things, that's, that's the first evidence that you haven't understood Jesus or the gospel at all. You become a Christian by putting your faith in Jesus' death for you on the cross and turning from your sin. I also want to be clear that the Bible holds forth obedience, righteousness, and above all, love in action as the, true mar- as the mark of a true Christian. L- let me put it this way. Genuine Christians, true Christians, take sin seriously. If you don't take sin seriously, the Bible would suggest that you should not be confident that you're a Christian. I mean, he says it in even starker terms than that, doesn't he? So let's, Lord willing, let's be a congregation that that takes sin seriously, not in in some kind of way where we're trying to, you know, go on some witch hunt, but that we, we reflect on our own lives, that we would desire as a church to reflect God's character and his, his beauty and his justice and his love and his goodness 
first in here and so that it will radiate out into the world and they'll see the outside world will be looking and saying, why do they live like, like this? Why do they care about equity and justice and fairness and rightness and purity and love? And we can say because we're part of another kingdom. The spirit of, we haven't done it. It's been God's transformation in us. Takeaway number two. God doesn't want your Christian existence to be marked by constant doubt, fear, uncertainty as to whether you're God's child. God does not want your Christian existence to be marked by constant fear, anxiety, uncertainty, whether you're God's child. There should be a constant cycle in the Christian life. You're always trusting in Christ and turning from your sin. That's kind of, that's the default mode of the Christian. But then, you're going to fall short of reflecting Christ. It's going to happen. You're going to sin. You're not going to live all the time in a consistent way with who you are inside. And when that happens, you acknowledge, you confess sin, and you fight against it. And then the Christian returns to Christ who has provided all the righteousness that we could ever have before God. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Trust Christ, fall into sin, take it seriously, fight against it, get others involved, see seeds of transformation in your life, yes, slowly, sometimes inconsistently, go back to Christ, Trust in him alone because you can never have confidence in yourself. That's the cycle of the Christian life. And have confidence in Christ. That's where where you always end, isn't it? The cycle always, it starts with Christ, it ends with Christ. Christ is in in it through all, everything. I think John expects us to read this as Christians in such a way that we'll we'll actually examine our lives for seeds of transformation, okay? Not doubt. When you see seeds of transformation, there can be incredible confidence that God has not only adopted you legally, given you his name, but he's also transforming you into his likeness on the inside. And brothers and sisters, that can give us tremendous confidence. And hopefully the world can look in on the inside saying, something radically, something supernatural is going on here. 